1: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like
0: this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for my podcast, Great New American Essays. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's spotlight is on the literary magazine, The New England Review. I'm joined by the magazine's creative nonfiction editor, Elizabeth Kodetsky. She's been a Fulbright scholar and serves as a professor of English and creative writing at Penn State. Her collection of essays, The Memory Eaters, was published by the University of Massachusetts Press in 2020. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely.
1: So let's uh, jump right in. Uh, The New England Review, what would you say it's niche? What is its uh, calling card? What distinguishes it from other uh, comparable literary magazines?
0: Well, when you said niche, I was going to say literary uh, fiction and nonfiction. Um, But of course, other journals share that with us. Um, I would say that for all of the journals, we're all publishing what we love. And so you see the individual mark of the editors. Um, and then if we were to get more specific as far as creative nonfiction, I think that we have a an interest in storytelling in our creative nonfiction. And we like to see writers out in the world, um, in often incorporating some research and sometimes travel. Um, but we're always looking for something rich, full of detail, beautifully written, literary prose, and that tells a story.
1: Okay, um, that getting out in the world, is that part of what goes into, there's an interesting kind of thumbnail description for NER online. It says, a snapshot of the literary moment. That That is unique. I've read more than a few profiles. I've never come across that phrase, other than in this case.
0: Oh, I love that. Um, I mean, I think we are trying to be relevant, and uh, I wouldn't say that our work is um, explicitly political, but it certainly tries to shed light on what is going on in the world right now. So you wouldn't see a lot of work that um, could have been published 20 years ago. Um, There's usually something about it that makes it feel relevant to our moment. Okay. Um, and for you as an editor,
1: uh, just a few questions before we get to the essays. Are there particular voices, styles, uh, subject matter that you gravitate n- to naturally? We all we all have our our biases and interests. I think readers would be listeners would be interested to know.
0: Yeah, well, I know uh, you let me know which essays we'll be talking about, and I think of the four, uh, three of them involve um, traveling uh, to places outside of the United States. So. I personally am really interested as a reader in finding out about places that are unfamiliar to me and sometimes cultures that are unfamiliar to me. Um, I'm always looking for a strong voice uh, and a narrative presence by the author. Um, and as far as subject matter, there's no there's no list, there's no checklist, uh, but I really tend to know it uh, when I see it. Um, and I would I would say that the guiding principle is really getting out of one's own head, um, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> and just interacting with the world. <laughs> no, I, I
1: like that a lot. So there are some subcategories <laughs> that the magazine uses for its nonfiction, speaking of getting out of your own head. So there's Brabler's Notebook, which you kind of already touched on. Uh, there's Reckoning, which seems to be quite commonly used. But Testimonies, Observations, Investigations. Explanations, um, so it's quite a, it's quite a, it's quite a list. Um, <laughs> anything you might want to say about that?
0: Well, I think that they are somewhat quirky organizing principles, um, but I really do like the reckonings um, category, which, to me, speaks to going back over something and maybe uh to tie it back to that idea of the present moment um you know maybe looking at something from the past but seeing it through a filter of uh of now right like what can the present moment bring to perhaps a story from the past um investigations i think um i think could encompass a lot of what we do anyway uh for me the best non-fiction is about questions, uh, usually that don't get answered. So sure. investigation is a, a something that I think of a lot in in my own essays, that I'm always trying to um have a a question or a, a line of um mm-hmm. of querying in an essay that leads me to places that I might not expect to go. Um, and again coming out at the end perhaps not with an answer to the question but with a vector pointing to some different questions sure no i, I like that a lot and um, the the reckonings and then coming back it's funny because
1: my last question is going to involve something from your own book uh that you came back to again and again um and i assume probably it, it grew in weight every time you came back to reckon with the the, the subject matter so so let's move overseas uh, let's go to the essay by Joseph Pearson. It's called The Island That Eats People. Uh, my wife happens to love Greece. She lived there twice. Uh, that's part of why I chose it. But like you, I, I really enjoy the journey, the travel, the uh, chance to explore something new. Uh, what struck you in this case?
0: Well, for one, uh, this writer, Joseph Pearson, is just such a wonderful writer. And we, uh, a few years ago, published another piece by him that was set in um, Tangier in Morocco, and it was kind of uh, reclaiming Paul Bowles's Morocco. Um, and I, I loved that essay because I, I am a big fan of Paul Bowles's writing, and yet I see the flaws. And so I, I was really happy to see somebody uh, kind of reckon with it to go back to the reckonings theme. So uh, for me, when this piece came in, I was just immediately enthralled by the voice of it. Um, And I like the structure of it, which is several short pieces, uh, short meditations set on different islands in Greece, um, starting out with this kind of mythic story of this island that uh, he shouldn't go to, but he's planning to go there anyway. And everybody keeps telling him that it's the island that eats people. Um, and he better not go, but uh, he goes anyway, and then we don't really hap- We don't really find out what happens, um, but then from there it it gets into uh, the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean, but in a very sideways way through focusing on people, uh, description, place. Um, And I particularly really liked the second, um, anecdote in this piece where he, he meets a young man who has fled, um, to Greece, um, from Syria and miraculously survives the journey and makes it, um, as a student, um, in Greece and there encounters our writer, um, our writer Joseph. And I'm looking at it right now, um this line I just thought was so wonderful, it's a quote. I remember Akram tells me, pushing his lunch tray to one side, that I had a cigarette I kept dry in a Ziploc bag. I took it out and smoked it, looking at the water as the sun rose. I thought, this might be my last cigarette and my last morning ever on a beach. And uh, to me, this just said so much about the refugee crisis and also just this moment, it's a person. And, um the use of an object, a cigarette uh, in that Ziploc bag its just so vivid and you can almost smell it. um and that's one thing in writing I'm also always looking for is uh the concrete, um the physical objects, these, you know, shiny objects that carry so much meaning and um metaphorical significance as well. So I just think uh Joseph is a wonderful writer who makes these places so felt, but then, he brings himself in. Uh, his voice is so strong, but it's never really about him. He's really the the spirit guide in a sense.
1: Yeah. So it it's, it starts out when kind of thinking he's going to be physically vulnerable, and he actually is at one point when he's out on a hike on the yeah. island. But then we get to the vulnerability of all these Syrian refugees, for instance, and so the the stakes just go higher, and yeah. and that's part of what it's taking on. It also takes on at one point something that draws me to something you published. Recently, in the American Scholar, it's called the Goddess Complex because in his piece, he invokes the French seizing a statue and hauling it off to the Louvre. Yeah. Uh, in your piece, uh, it's about something that's been looted from India. Um, so that, that's my setup tease for the listener. Uh, why don't you fill in the story if you don't mind?
0: <laughs> sure. And I, I guess just to um, segue, I like your segue and just to jump on that. Um, when uh, Joseph's piece came in, I was actually in the thick of working on that story uh, for American Scholar. And uh, there's so much in the news right now about looting of these ancient sculptures and repatriation to museums. And we're even rethinking, um, or there's a conversation, rethinking the Parthenon marbles debate. And it's so much in the news. And I thought that Joseph handled it really nicely Um not really making a comment about where the sculpture belongs and if it should be returned by france um kind of getting out of the politics but the politics is so much there in the background and the reader who's in the know um sees that it's almost like a layer uh behind that in joseph's essay so um let's see what can i say about my essay i um i've always been really interested in the theme of artifacts and i I think it's just because I'm a writer and I'm interested in objects and I have a, you know, family and, um, grandparents who saved weird things. And one time in my basement, I opened one of my mother's boxes and found a collection of, um, teeth of, <laughs> you know, baby teeth from ancestors. And I, I just, um, I, Maybe it's a, chi- a childlike uh, fascination that I've always had with objects and finding them, and the question of how they got where they are, um, their journeys, and all the meanings that they accumulate over those journeys. Yeah, yeah,
1: the, so, the story of the object and the story behind the story of the object. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I, for many years, had wanted to write about that, and I wound up getting a Fulbright grant to research that topic in India. Research started out very generally, and then slowly, slowly I was able to narrow my research into this one temple that had um, a collection of goddess sculptures. Um, Nine of them were stolen uh, in the 1960s and transported to the West. And I spent a lot of time just investigating how it happened and how they made the journey to top museums across the world, including the Met uh, in New York and the British Museum, Cleveland Museum of Art, uh, Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Um, And when I started the story, uh, there was really no, uh, nothing had been written much about these sculptures. So I, I didn't really expect to find out what happened, but it wound up being possible to find out what happened, um, which was that there was an American art dealer in New York City in the early 1960s who pretty much put a hit on these sculptures and uh, because she had seen them published in a very esoteric arts journal out of India that was only read by people in art history, archaeology in India. But at that time, uh, dealers in the U.S. started uh, tracking them. And so a lot of the sculptures that were written about at that time wound up getting looted. And this was one of the few cases where you could really track uh, the sculptures from their original publication in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, to uh, where they wound up um, in these museums. And at the time, this one at the Met, uh, when I started doing the research, was still there, so I was able to visit it several times. And then over the course of my research, it wound up getting um, seized by the authorities in New York uh, and still still up in the air. It's not um, it's not back at the temple at this point.
1: Yeah. Well, you yeah. So, yes, it had a literal paper trail in that. There was a publication, obscure as it might have been, that... Uh, cause this heist to take place there was a there was a term you used that I really enjoyed in the essay. Uh, you said the the dealer's false innocence and it wasn't just hers. there was others involved um because this has been in the news a lot. you know uh, uh, Anderson Cooper just ran a 60 minute segment on stolen art out of uh, Cambodia. Um, I saw a documentary last year about the, the Sacklers, and that's stolen in other ways people's lives stolen. Uh, but the money sometimes went to uh, fund fund uh, art collections and uh, wings of museums. False innocence seems to me that there's a fair amount of it about in the art world. Um, anything <laughs> you might want to say?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, one of the things I did in my research was I was able to access letters at the Cleveland Museum of Art. They were quite transparent about making their archives available. And so I found uh, correspondence by the the director and curator of that museum, Sherman Lee, who was a major figure in Asian art um, scholarship and collecting at that time in the 1960s. And I found some of his letters back and forth with this dealer whose name was Doris Weiner. And um, there was just this atmosphere of uh, effete charming, uh, bourgeois um, dancing around the central question and this kind of conspiracy of of silence, I would say, about the, the central question of um, where did these objects come from and um, weren't they stolen? And what was the problem with stealing them? And of course, we have this Parallax right now, uh, where we look back at the '60s and we say, "This was so obviously oh, um, yeah. unethical, right? To s- literally steal these sculptures and um, and sell them uh, for you know ten thousand dollars at the time, which is about eighty thousand dollars now, um, to museums and then display them." But really, it was decades that people didn't question this. I mean, certainly there were always people calling out the corruption of that trade, but as far as the mainstream or um, what would happen when you went to a gallery at the Met or another museum and looked at this uh, these objects that were obviously stolen, um, there was this kind of way that nobody was really asking those questions and putting them to the fore. And so the dealers certainly capitalized on that. Um, I mean, it's it, it's so connected up with Black Lives Matter. I mean, certainly uh, everybody knew that there was systemic racism and that institutions were, were uh, following policies that disadvantaged um, people of color, Black people, um, from education to healthcare. We all knew that, but it took Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matters for us to you know, really look at those institutions and see how exactly this racism was being carried out in a in an institutionalized way. And I think it's the same thing with museums, finally, where we're, we're yeah. seeing differently. Yeah. No, no. A, a big
1: moment. Uh, George Floyd actually literally died about three miles from my house because I, I live in Twin Cities. Um, so it was a very seismic event. Um, I'm going to move on just in the interest of time. Not that I couldn't stay with that topic for quite a while because I could. Um, moving from commercialism and capitalism to the nonprofit sector, uh, there's another essay um, in New England Review, Stories, South Sudan. This is by Adri Kusero. Uh, She's talking about both her time in uh, South Sudan, but as well when some of the refugees are back in Vermont and she's with them. Um, she speaks a bit about the what she calls the Museum of Me, the Consumerist Society, um, I'm thinking about Barbie dolls in the case in Vermont. I'm thinking about the NGOs with all their laptops and iPhones while they're in Sudan, which is obviously not the lifestyle uh, that would be you know, inherent to the region. Um, wh- how would you put all the pieces together? We're in Vermont, we're in Sudan. What's, what's the through line here?
0: I Yeah, I thought this was a wonderful essay. Um, I think that one thing is that it just starts out with such strong description and uh you see somebody who is clearly on the outside um who's working as an uh aid, you know, NGO worker um in this um quite unstable situation in in Sudan and she, in a sense she is uh, reckoning with her uh, privilege as an outsider and as a foreigner. Um, but also feeling the intense the intensity of that environment and the the danger of it, um, and also the scarcity. So the beginning starts out with this wonderful image of um, these electrical cables uh, where everybody's fighting to charge their their devices. And uh, these electrical cables are like uh, worms and snakes. And I think that,, um, I think she was just very effective at ringing across the 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 difficulty of of that setting um, and showing how she personally was affected by it, but also understanding that she was there, um, not as somebody whose entire life was upset by this, you know, life family. Um, losing, you know, re- what it is like to be a refugee. She's there as a non-refugee. And then um, when she follows uh, the refugees, um, when she's back in Vermont and is working with um, a similar population, um, I think that she she has a, a real edge and a kind of an anger um, as she sees how our... Um, you know kind of present moment or politically correct moment tries to absorb people who are coming from the situation of intense trauma and i thought that she did an excellent job of pointing out how in a, in a in a kind of politically correct mindset there's not really room for trauma um and that it, it in a in a way it's it's denying the trauma uh, that people have experienced even as it's trying to help people and so the um limitations of that kind of liberal, um, giving of help. Um, and that, you know, you really can't take somebody's trauma away. Um, and then I think she's very critical of that, um, relief establishment, you know, when we get to the United States and, um, just this idea that like you wouldn't give people Barbie dolls because they're so sexist. And then she's like, who cares about sexism at this point? Like these people are barely surviving and um, let's just try to really meet people where they are and honor uh, their perspective. And then also this really interesting twist, which is that, you know, some of these Sudanese girls are, you know, not really buying into our American view of, you know, feminism and gender relations Um so, I, I thought it was a really eye opening and somewhat challenging essay that someone might challenge some of the values of our readers in an important way, you know, just to get us her, thinking, you know, reckonings. I think yeah, I no, she is. She,
1: probably, you know, she, she was admitting she was right up against the glass, but there was still this glass between her and these people and their lives and their fate, uh, whether it was in Sudan or otherwise. I, I have not been to Sudan, but I remember flying into Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Four minutes after I, I've landed, I, I've just gotten out of the plane, and the lights of the entire airport go out. The generators failed, and I went, "Okay, so this is going to be a place of insecurity. Uh, right. Just, just, get, <laughs> just get ready for it." Um, in the time we've got left, I want to go to one last place really quickly. In your collection, the Memory Eaters. I guess maybe because of my interest in art, in part, um, I want to go to Bombing the Ghost, and one particular question which goes back to recordings. I promised you that earlier. You say the documentary Downtown 81, you watched it five times if I read correctly. Um, (laughs) Yeah, my favorite movies, yeah, I've maybe watched them five times, but it happens pretty rarely. Five times is an investment. And I'm wondering what you learned, how you gained, how perspective shifted through those five times and why that piece, that documentary was seminal for you.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I was actually even thinking about that movie the other day and thinking of going back to watch it again. I mean, it is a piece of art uh, for people who don't know it. It was made in 1981, obviously, and um, Jean-Michel Basquiat, the artist, is the star of it. He's the actor. Uh, It's a made-up story. Um, uh, Debbie Harry, uh, Blondie, is also in it. We see her kind of the early a little bit before she was blondie and, um, she's so, um, both of them, you know, they're both just so beautiful to watch. And yet the setting is so dark and it really is downtown New York. Um, when the village and Alphabet City were just really bombed out, you could say lots of abandoned buildings, lots of, um, Lots, empty lots filled with garbage, um, graffiti, uh, this beautiful kind of destitute landscape. And the film really just embraces that landscape and finds beauty in it. Uh, some of the architecture is so beautiful. And and in a weird way, this does go back to my fascination with artifacts. And of course, I was living in New York at the time as a um, young uh, pre-teenager and Uh, really just enchanted um, myself with the derelict quality of these beautiful, beautiful buildings and these beautiful spaces, which, of course, if you go to them now, they're all spruced up and fancy and really has boutiques in them. Um, And not too surprisingly, because there was just something so uh, scenic about that setting. So um, there's this really memorable scene where um, Debbie Harry is lying in a heap of garbage in an alley <laughs> and John michel uh discovers her and they decide, you know, that they're going to go on the next phase of their journey. Um, but I, I highly recommend the movie. And I think it's actually fairly short. It might not be too much longer than an hour. So watching it five times is not a huge investment.
1: <laughs> sure. Well, I do remember seeing her uh, live in Blondie. I think it was an evening, quite honestly, in Boston where she wasn't so excited about being on stage. So it was a, <laughs> a rather an uneven concert, but it had its has moments. So anyway, I think our moment has, has run out because I, I promise you we wouldn't go on forever. So I want to thank you so much. My guest today has been Lilith Kadetsky. She is the creative nonfiction editor at the New England Review. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation.